a little reading from a book entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, written by John Mark Comer. We all know our world has sped up to a frenetic pace. We feel it in our bones, not to mention on the freeway, but it hasn't always been like this. For just a few moments, we'll talk about the Roman sundial, St. Benedict, and maybe Thomas Edison. First, the sundial, what we would maybe call the original Casio or Timex. As far back as approximately 200 B.C., people were complaining about what this new technology was doing to society. The Roman playwright Plautus turned anger into poetry and wrote this, The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish ours. Confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. 200 B.C. Next time you're running late, maybe you could quote a little Plautus and say, the gods confound the man. <laughs> Fast forward to the monks, some of, our, some of which would be our spiritual ancestors. <clears throat> Well-meaning, they played a key role in advancing Western society. In the 6th century, St. Benedict organized the monastery around seven times of prayer each day. It's not a bad idea. The Bible tells us that we ought always to pray and not to faint. However, by the 12th century, the monks had invented the mechanical clock to rally the monastery to prayer. It was designed, created, so that the monks would remember when it was time to pray. However, most historians point to the year 1370 as the turning point in the West's relation to time. It was that year that the first public clock tower was erected in Cologne, Germany. Before that, time was natural. It was linked to the rotation of the earth on its axis and to the four seasons. You went to bed with the moon and got up with the sun. Days were long and busy in the summer and short uh, and uh, slower in the winter. There was a rhythm to the day and even to the year. And life was, as one writer said, dominated by agrarian rhythms free of haste, careless of exactitude, and unconcerned by productivity. Can you imagine living in a world like that? Me neither. But the clock changed all that. It created artificial time, the slog of the nine to five all year long. We stopped listening to our bodies and started rising when our alarms droned their oppressive siren, not when our bodies were done resting. We became more efficient, yes, but also more machine, some would say less human. One historian's summary of this key moment was this. Here was man's declaration of independence from the sun. New proof of his mastery over himself and his surroundings. Only later would it be revealed that he had accomplished this mastery by putting himself under the dominion of a machine with imperious demands all its own. 
You see, when the sun set our rhythms of work and rest, it did so under the control of God. But the clock is under the control of the employer, a far more demanding master. Then in 1879, you have Thomas Edison and the electric light bulb, which made it possible for us to stay up past sunset. Continuing to quote from the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Brace yourselves for this stat. Before Thomas Edison, the average person slept 11 hours a night. This writer spoke of reading about spiritual people from time, year, times past, years past, and I've done the same thing. People like uh, Teresa of Avila and John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon who would get up at four in the morning to pray. And when you read about people like that, it makes you think, wow, they are way more serious about Jesus than I am. And I'm the pastor of the church, and I'm not sure I could tell you when was the last time I got up at four in the morning to pray. Truthfully, probably the last time I got up at four in the morning, it wasn't to pray. Probably because I was forced to. But then you stop and think about it and realize these people probably went to bed at 7 o'clock at night. Once you've gotten nine hours of sleep, you'd be in pretty good shape, right? Now, at least in America, we're down to about seven as the average number of hours of sleep per night. And many people that I talk to get less than that. That's two and a half hours less sleep on average than only a century ago. And as this writer pointed out prior to Thomas Edison and the electric light bulbs, a time when people were averaging 11 hours of sleep at night. Is it any wonder that we're tired most of the time? Because we're so busy and we get so little sleep. Then you throw in special times of the year, like Christmas, and you find that you have even more to do, even more to keep you busy, and often the true meaning of what we are celebrating slips us by, and I can't tell you the, uh, the, the, the number of times that I have gotten to New Year's Eve or New Year's Day or maybe slightly past, and I have come to the point of realization for myself that Christmas has been less meaningful to me than it ought to have been because I have been so busy. We're talking about the coming of the Holy One. Last week I mentioned to you a strange man who appeared on the scene wearing uh, rough clothing of, of camel's hair and a leather uh, uh, belt around his waist, and he ate a, a, an unusual diet of locusts and wild honey, and he came preparing the way uh, for the Lord. When you read about John the Baptist, you read about a man who, he must have been somewhat alarming in appearance, and also alarming I think, in his demeanor, and he was definitely alarming to the people of his day in many respects. 
He was not afraid to speak and to preach boldly. He came preaching a message of repentance, for he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called out the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, and called them a brood of vipers. He even preached directly to King Herod and said to him, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Can you imagine a preacher today calling out such public figures and being so clear and not just standing in a pulpit where everybody in the audience knows what's going on and pretty much agrees with the immorality of the culture, but he preached directly to King Herod. King Herod was there. When you think about what John the Baptist was like, it doesn't seem unreasonable to think that when the Holy One, the Messiah, comes on the scene, you might expect that he would be a real take-charge kind of person, following in the footsteps, following in the manner of the ministry of John the Baptist with calling out people being very, very direct and, and uh, getting people's attention, doing whatever it took to say, there's someone in charge now. You're going to listen. You're going to pay attention to me. But the reality is he arrived without much fanfare, at least in the parts of the world that mattered most. In his later ministry, he was described by Matthew using words from the prophet Isaiah. Matthew chapter 12, especially verse 19, but I'll begin with verse 18. Matthew, quoting from Isaiah, writes this, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now listen to these words. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This second Sunday of Advent emphasizes peace. And I think without realizing, we often forget that God will not compete for our attention. Can I say that to you again very kindly? We need to realize that God will not compete for our attention. And without realizing, we go through our day-to-day -day lives and we desire God. We say we desire God's presence. We say we desire God's peace in our hearts and in our lives. And yet we sabotage our pursuit of peace through busyness then wonder why perhaps God seems distant and we feel more stressed than blessed. When the Son of God came, He did not come to compete with the noise of the world. When the Son of God came, He did not come to engage in theological or political debates and win arguments. 
He didn't try to win any popularity contests in his own day. And still in our day today, God, through Christ and his spirit, is still not in the business of trying to win popularity contests. But he came in the meekest and the most peaceful way that he could possibly come. The Word, as John chapter 1 tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the form of a little baby, an infant, that could make no sound but cry. Everyone who found Jesus when he came the first time was someone who was listening and looking for him. Yes, the shepherds on the hillside did have a choir of angels to announce his birth, but then they were quick to respond and say, let us go and see this thing which the angels have told us about. They were listening and looking. Think about the wise men. Yes, they had the star, but they were so intrigued and so in tuned and, and many Scholars believe that these wise men were men who were descendants of Daniel, or they at least had the information that Daniel left behind. And they came, wise men from the east, looking and listening. And you see, friends, God can be found by the people who listen and look for him. There are others that we could talk about, Simeon and Anna, who were tuned in and looking for the Messiah. This prophecy of Isaiah that Matthew quotes that says, again, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It gives us a beautiful picture, I believe, of the character of the Messiah and also a picture of the heart of God himself. And it also helps us to understand the kind of person who can find God. What does it take for you and I to find God for a reality in our own hearts and lives. The person who can find God, I believe, first of all, is the person who gets reasonable. The person who gets reasonable. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, notice the first part of the prophecy from Isaiah that Matthew quotes says, He will not quarrel. He will not quarrel. Another word for that is the word wrangling. We've just come through a, a, a period of, uh, of uh, an election, midterm elections, and, and uh, wrangling is a word you may have heard on the news, on the radio. People referring to political wrangling. It simply means debating. We're familiar with this from political debates and, and in a... In a a, a governmental system uh, with basically two parties, and uh, please understand me, I'm not, I'm not endorsing anything political, I'm just trying to help you realize what I'm talking about. Two parties that get further and further apart, and less and less willing to engage in dialogue and try to work together to accomplish something for the good of the nation political wrangling and debating and arguing. We also have religious and theological debates. I sometimes listen uh, either to podcasts or, or to uh, YouTube clips of 
of debates between uh, atheists and Christians and things of that nature. Those, those kinds of things uh, I listen to as a learning experience and it helps me to learn something. And often I admire people who engage in debates because uh, some that I've heard actually debate each other, you hear them talk prior to and after the debate and you find out that they're friends. Some people, it seems, are able to engage in dialogue and debate and discussion and keep their emotions disengaged. Their friends before the debate and their friends after the debate. And I've got to tell you truthfully, I struggle to be that kind of a person. When I talk to people who try to debate me, I have a hard time not letting my emotions get engaged. A man named George MacDonald said, to give truth to him who loves it not is but to give him more plentiful material for misinterpretation. <clears throat> I read uh, something recently about something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning and Kruger did uh, some research, and I think they, they at least wrote an article, maybe a book, about their research. What they found was this. People with less than average abilities tend to overestimate their true ability, while those with higher than average ability tend to not realize how much better they are. Now, I don't know if you were able to interpret that, but essentially what they were saying is, according to their research, some people are too stupid to know how stupid they are. While smart people assume that most can do what they can do. Unfortunately, those with the loudest voices often have the most confidence and the least competence. For example, pundits on both sides of the political spectrum speak for hours about topics they know very little about. Have you ever thought about that when you're listening to these people on the radio or on the television when they're talking about whatever it is, foreign, foreign policy or medicine or science or economics, and they can expound endlessly and go on and on. Yet, what are the odds that they are experts in all of those topics? Most of them are not. Then where do they get that confidence, their confidence to speak so authoritatively about something that they probably know very little about? That is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. They are too stupid to realize how stupid they are. Or, as someone else said, empty barrels make the most noise. Empty barrels make the most noise. You can read about a man named Oliver Cromwell. Some of you remember him as a figure from history. And uh, during his time as a, as a leader uh, in the Commonwealth of England, he wrote a letter to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland on August 3rd, 1650, just prior to the Battle of Dunbar. And in that letter, he included a phrase that has become well-known and often quoted. He said this, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you may be mistaken. 
And yet, isn't it interesting that the one person who has ever come into this world who could have won every debate, who could have won any argument in which he engaged, chose never to argue or debate with people? Jesus came, and he did not quarrel. He did not argue or debate. The person who finds God is the person who gets reasonable, the person who is willing to stop their arguing and their debating and listen to someone else's perspective other than their own, particularly to God's voice and His perspective. Also, the person who can find God is the person who gets quiet. The person who gets quiet. Notice the next part of the prophecy from Isaiah that Matthew quotes. says, he will not cry aloud. He will not cry aloud. The, the word that is used in that verse and translated as cry aloud means the same thing as the barking of a dog. Have you ever heard in your neighborhood for seemingly no apparent reason a dog start barking. And I heard one man talk about it this way. He, he imagined the dog thinking to himself, hmm, it's a nice quiet night. Why don't I bark it up for a while? And the dog just starts and goes on and on. We have two dogs in our backyard. And Lord help us, sometimes... I don't know what in the world's going on. It's also the word used for the croaking of a raven. The croaking of a raven. Um, in other words, it's, it's, it's noise. It's the idea that the person with the most volume wins. The person with the most volume wins. Some of you may have had experience at family dinner tables that looked something like this one, either at Thanksgiving time, maybe at Christmas Forgive me, I've mentioned politics a few times, but if you end up in your family, large family gathering, and you have people with multiple perspectives, it's a wise thing to stay away from politics because you end up in discussions or perhaps arguments or even disagreements and debates that can get heated and if they're anything like some of the families that I know of, and actually my own family, and some of the, some of the dinners that I've been to, um, uh, so many people have something to say. And they feel like what they have to say is the most important thing to be said at that particular moment, and if somebody else is talking, then they just simply have to talk louder in order to be heard. The person with the most volume wins. There are occasions, I believe, when God, either in mercy or because of high stakes, will make himself heard by a person who's not really paying attention. We have, we have biblical uh, evidence of that. For example, Saul, who became Paul, who was on the road to Damascus. Yet the Bible tells us that he really believed he was serving God and wanted to serve God. And I, I think that's one of those cases that God in, in mercy and because of the high stakes involved 
went above and beyond to get Paul's attention and struck him down off his horse and spoke to him directly. Yet that's not the general rule. Generally speaking, that's not the way God works. Generally speaking, there is a hiddenness of God, a hidden aspect of God. Not that, not that God is playing games with us, not that God is playing hide-and-seek, so to speak, but He is hidden so that those who do not want Him don't have to experience Him. He remains hidden so that those who do not want God to interfere in their lives do not have to experience His presence. Yet He is there just enough. Yesterday after men's breakfast, some of us were talking about prevenient grace. And, and the, the, there's a verse, I believe, in the book of Titus that says that the grace of God has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodly uh, lusts and worldly affections, we should live soberly in this present age. The grace of God has appeared to all men. Everybody has a measure of grace. But friends, too many of us miss the voice of God because we stay too busy and too noisy and never on purpose slow down and get quiet enough for God to speak to us. Do you remember the story of Elijah after he had the encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and he went away depressed and went and sat under the juniper tree for a while and then God took care of him, ministered to him, fed him and sent him out further into the wilderness and he experienced, what was it, a, a storm? And it says, but God was not in the storm. And then fire, but God was not in the fire. And then finally, a still, small voice. Friends, by and large, if we're not paying attention, God will not shout to get your attention. He is found by the person who gets quiet but he's also found by the person who gets away. The person who gets away. What do you mean, gets away? Well, that last part of verse 19 of Matthew chapter 12 says, His voice will not be heard in the streets. His voice will not be heard in the streets. What I imagine when I read that is that Jesus never tried and never intended to be like a, a barker at a carnival. You know what a barker at a carnival is? Or, or maybe, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think, I don't even remember where I heard it, but I remember hearing somewhere, um, I don't know, maybe it was a school football game or something. It was some kind of a setting where there was somebody selling snacks, and he was walking up and down the steps of the bleachers, hollering out at the top of his voice, cotton candy, balloons, just like that, over and over and over again. He was selling, obviously, cotton candy and balloons. 
and he was doing what he had to do to make sure his voice was heard over the noise and the racket of whatever was going on that the people were there to observe and over the noise and the racket of the crowd sitting in the, the, uh, the bleachers as spectators. Again, by and large, God does not work like a barker at a carnival or someone selling their wares in a noisy marketplace. God will not compete with the noise around us for our attention. God will not ever demand our attention. But He is there and available to be found by the person who is willing to be reasonable and not argue or debate by the person who is willing to get away from the noise of the world and get quiet, and get quiet. As we close this morning, I want to invite you to imagine stepping away from the noise of the world Whatever your world involves, most of us probably are, are busy most every day going and doing and, and working and, and just taking care of life. And yes, I understand it's something that we all have to do, but just for a moment, step away from the noise of the street and get quiet and look into the manger and see the baby laying there. I think God knew that if anything could melt hearts of stone and turn them into flesh that he could touch and speak to, that it would be a baby. God who could have invaded our world in a way that no one could ignore. God who could have silenced us with the mighty thunder and power of His voice. God who speaks His will and it is done. God who could, if He wanted to, overwhelm our every argument and win every debate. This God handicapped Himself and muted Himself by coming as a helpless and a needy baby laying in a manger. I was thinking and praying about this this morning, and it so overwhelmed me to think. A, a baby will receive love and care from anyone who is willing to give it. I know babies cry and they do make noise, but you don't shout and yell back at the baby when the baby cries. You get quiet and try to quiet the baby. You don't argue and debate with the baby. You step away from the noise and the clatter and you give love and care. I wish I could 
share with you how this thought impacted me and how it spoke to me this morning. And the best thing that I can do to say is, for one, God coming as an infant made me realize that God wants everybody. There's nobody that God does not want. What an overwhelming, powerful thought. Say, Pastor, how does that, how does that connect? A, a, a baby will receive love and care from anybody who's willing to give it. And I think it's this that reveals the heart of God, that he came as a helpless baby. A baby that is an invitation to anyone who is willing to quietly and peacefully give love and care. No, God, God doesn't need your love and care in order to survive like a baby does. But I believe he came as a baby to show us his heart for us. Let me invite you this week, this holiday season, friends, to on purpose set aside some time. God helping me, I'm, I'm going to, I'm planning by the end of the day today to to set a few alarms on my phone to remind me over the course of the next few weeks to get somewhere quiet and for me to be quiet and spend time looking on the baby in the manger. You see, God came and invaded this world, yes, but not with noise and not with debates and, and not trying to, to win arguments. He didn't come to compete for our attention. He came simply inviting our attention. And to the person who is willing to be reasonable and get away and be quiet, He's there. He is there to be found. As the songwriter said, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Let's stand together.